Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. LEAP stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving LEAP individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to theleapcast.com right now to subscribe. Today I'm excited to have a guest here with us. Uh, his name is Scott Palmer. He is a, a longtime award-winning broadcaster and also uh, ambassador to the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, and I'm just excited to have this conversation with him. So Scott, welcome to LeapCast. Thank you for joining me today. Um, Thank you, Dr. George. It's great to be here with you again. And, you know, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And one of the things I, you know, I was just, uh, you have been able to do so many amazing things in your career. Uh, I saw from, you know, your military service, from being in Vietnam to just always having that broadcaster bug where you wanted to tell stories and allow people to just know so much about what's going on in the world and through sports and I just I, I, I would love if you could share just a little bit about your career and how you kind of got to where you are so that we can understand some of the things that you've been able to do to this point. Well, well thank you for those very kind words. I'd like to start by by clarifying one one thing. I was a Vietnam era uh, veteran. I am a Vietnam era veteran. Uh, I served our country in the United States Navy, uh, but uh, um, never went in country, as they say. I was stateside in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and in AS Jacksonville, first as an air traffic controller, then as a public affairs officer. After that, I started my career in, uh, in sports casting uh, in both Jacksonville and then moving on to cities in uh, like Spartanburg, South Carolina, and Asheville, North Carolina, then sliding to Birmingham, Alabama, where I had the good fortune of working with Bear Bryant and the Alabama Crimson Tide. It's kind of like a you would notice of the progression of a major league baseball player. You, you don't get drafted and go right to the big league club. You spend your time learning your craft, and it's much the same way in broadcasting. You had your own minor league circuit. I did. I did. And uh, crazy things like I got to bat against Bob Feller, who was brainstorm uh, barnstorming at that time. Uh, just, just you know, kind of nutty things that you do as a as a small town sportscaster. I rode a bull in a rodeo once. That didn't end well. Uh, I drove a I drove in a race race uh, stock car race. Uh, that went a little bit better. I didn't get hurt, and I, and I finished without banging up the car. Uh, and and at quarterback to college football team for four plays and a in a scrimmage. But things you do when you're trying to make a name for yourself and do things a little bit different. Uh, from Birmingham, I was very fortunate to uh, come to Philadelphia and be part of an action news team uh, that uh, very successful in the city of Philadelphia. And we had the same anchor team together for uh, 25 years. Wow. Five o'clock, and then went into uh, and news uh, started, uh, you know, being an anchor in news. And the first day, I thought I'd like to do something better than the fires and and the homicides of the night before. I hope something happens. Uh, little did I know that Princess Diana was killed in a car crash that night. So I was the first one to do that story in the morning. And I, you know, that I guess I was off and running from that point. Nothing like throwing your feet to the fire. Uh, and, and did that uh, until I retired from broadcasting. After being uh, a broadcaster for 35 years, I thought there was kind of a second part to this 
life story and was fortunate enough to land with the Phillies where I've been for the last 16 years. Wow. I mean, I'm just, I'm in awe with just all the things that you've been able to do um, from your service to the country to your love of sports and your love of information and being able to share it with folks to cover, you know, the tragic loss and death of Princess Diana to um, to riding a bull uh, and just so many yeah. really great things. And, I, and I, I'm curious of like, like, when did you know like this was like, it sounds like you've been on this path for a, a while and, and how did you know that that was your path? Like this was where you're supposed to be. How does anybody know anything about where they're going to wind up, I guess, is a good place to start. Except that I knew from the time I was old enough to sit in front of a television that I was mesmerized by, by the medium. I was a child of television, and I actually liked watching newscasts when I was you know, nine years old. And, and I'd come back from Little League practice, and first of all, I thought I was going to be second baseman in the major leagues. And you know, that, that dream kind of ended quickly after I couldn't hit a curveball in high school. Yeah, that, that ended for me in Little League, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. Most of us go to that path. We all start out as Little Leaguers, and then the pyramid gets smaller and smaller until we have our Major League players. But I always loved television, and when I transferred from Wisconsin State Superior uh, as a freshman, uh, I transferred to uh, Western Illinois University as a sophomore, and found there was actually a major in radio and television and was was very fortunate. I was not a good student in high school, hmm. junior high school, for that matter. I had a learning disability that, that no one really knew about back then. Uh, I was dyslexic and, and more to the case of with numbers. I would get numbers mixed up. So for math and sciences, I was I was pretty I was pretty lacking, honestly. And I was also immature. I was the youngest person always in my class because of my birthday. Probably could have been held back very early, wasn't. Uh, I'm not saying that was a bad thing because some of my best friends I went to school with, but it made it a little bit difficult because I was immature. I didn't really learn how to study until I got to college. And again, uh, I went to Wisconsin State Superior, which is just on the border of being, you know, in <laughs> Canada with Duluth, Minnesota, right next door. And as I got off the plane, uh, and Christmas of 1968, with the wind chill, it was 64 below zero. So at that time, I realized that I needed oh to study, or I would freeze to death. <laughs> and I did, and I, I, I learned how to study at that point and overcame some some difficulties that I had earlier, and then got good enough grades to uh, to actually graduate with honors. But it was a little easier, and uh, for me because I was a broadcasting major. And whenever we find our calling, which is going back to the beginning of of your question, Dr. George, that was my calling. I always wanted to somehow be a part of television in any way. And, and being, a, being a broadcaster in front of the cam was, camera was just a bonus for me. You know, that, that, you know that's awesome. Like just hearing what we call your leap story, right? Like the way that you have navigated different parts of your life and you even getting to figuring out, like, you know, like you said, what is your calling? And I think it's also interesting just to hear, like, the challenges that you experience. And like you said, in a time where we didn't really highlight dys dyslexia like that, we didn't really no. talk about it. And if anything, if people were struggling with it, we would sometimes call them names or put them in a certain place. And and so I'm just, I'm really curious about how did you navigate that in your kind of early days, high school, college, to I think even overcome the things that you could be telling yourself in your own head. How did you I was, I was Dr. George. And uh, because I had a gift for speech, 
teachers would take that yeah. leap to say, obviously, he's not trying hard enough because look how well he communicates. Yeah. I was always the first person to raise my hand when somebody very early in our education process wanted someone in the class to read, you know, read out loud. I was right there and I read probably better than most people, which I guess I'm fortunate for the career. I had. But uh, I was the one who would kind of go back whenever math came because it just it just didn't come. It just didn't click yeah. so hard for me because my teachers thought that I wasn't trying. My parents thought that I wasn't trying. My friends just thought, well, he's not very smart, but he's he's a good guy and we like him. And. I was, uh, you know, a running back on the freshman football team until a scout team, actually, until I realized that I wouldn't make it past the first. Well, I'd never get in a game, first of all, but I'd never make it past first week of practice. And uh, God love him. My my favorite teacher was also the coach. So why don't you be the manager? That way you can be around the, the guys that you like, your peer group that you've gone all the way through school with. And you can still, uh, you know, help help the football team. So. That's what I did. I was a I was a football manager. Then I broadcast some uh, games in in basketball. Uh, and uh, it, high school was tough. Honestly, it was tough. It's not easy not being a smart or an average student when most of your most of your peer group is doing very well. And yeah, it took me until really the end of my freshman year until I conquered some of those difficult difficulties I had. Combined it with a lot of hard work, learned how to study, and then when I, once I found my passion in broadcasting, uh, it really became uh, a much easier course. I, I think that's a, a huge lesson for like all of us, right? Like we can have these challenges, like you say, and then and depending on when those challenges happen, we can have tough moments, whether it be middle school or high school or college mm -hmm. or just life. And I can imagine like high school, right? Trying to keep up with your classmates and your friends, whether, you know, like you kind of said it, like trying to keep up with them athletically as well as yes. academically, and then trying yeah. to find like where you land. And, mm -hmm. and in those, you know, I, in any of those moments, like even folks in high school now, like that can be just tough and overwhelming, trying to figure out who you are, your identity, trying to, to show people I'm capable. And somehow, like, it just sounded like you found your way to keep pushing through until you landed at the place where you belonged. And mm -hmm. fortunately for you, it happened early. <laughs> I know a lot of people, it, who, it takes a, a long time. But that that's just amazing that you were able to find, you know, broadcasting. Because, you know, when I listen to you, I hear, like, the voice. I mean, like, you have that voice. Obviously, like, you've been doing this for so many years. You're skilled at it. And I'm wondering, like, did you know you had that voice or like, did you know you could command people through your words, like from the beginning? I think, uh, first of all, I just want to say that I, I grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood. So I was fortunate to go to, uh, to good schools and, and that helped me a little bit. I, I really am concerned about uh, young people who are uh, growing up in disadvantaged communities and they have the same problem I had. Oh, two strikes against them right then. So I'm not trying to say, woe is me. But I thought, actually, to answer your question, I didn't think my voice was very good. I thought I had a thin voice because back when I started, the professional broadcasters talked like this. And I didn't talk like that. And I'll tell you a quick story. I was fortunate enough to work alongside Jim O'Brien, a legendary broadcaster in Philadelphia. Uh, people who grew up in the city will know Jim died tragically much too young. 
And after about the first week, he said, uh, you know, you're a pretty nice guy. And again, he was the king of Philadelphia. And he said, uh, and you might make it, but you might not make it here because you're too concerned about how you say things, what emphasis you're putting on a word, rather than talking to the folks. Yeah. He was the king of talking to the folks. Just talk to the folks like I'm there and you're talking to me. The camera is just the midway point. It shouldn't be an obstacle to talking to the folks. It should be, you know, a, a transit to talking to the folks. Talking with the folks is even better. And he said, if you do that, you know, you just might, you just might last a while. I would say in the beginning, Jim, I'll say this to you on the toss when I when I uh, when I go back to you. He never, 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 never tell me what you're gonna tell me. Because if you tell me what you're gonna tell me ahead of time, I'll think about an answer and right. there won't be the magic. And that's what I try to always tell young broadcasters. Have an idea about obviously what you're talking about, but at the same time, hit him with it. Hit hit her with it. Uh, don't give the story up ahead of time because their reaction won't be sincere. It won't be the first thing they think about. And that's all about talking to the folks. So I guess a long way of saying that what you say is more important than than how you say it or what kind of voice you use. It's, it's interesting you even end that way, you know, because we learn so much about like, you know, it's about what you say. I mean, it's about yeah. how you say it to folks, right? right. But in your, in your profession, right? Like, I could totally get that, right? Being able to just talk with people. And, you know, I really appreciated how you said that because I think about like even people who deal with like stage fright or anxiety <laughs> before a performance, that like a lot of it is just being able and willing to just to just be there and see people and interact with people as people and not be so overwhelmed by the moment. Of course, easier said than done. Uh, or even sure. folks in sports, right? Being able to say like, it's a big moment. As they say, the lights are bright, but if right. you go out there and be yourself and do what you've been learned, that what you've learned to do, you'll be able to be successful. And I just, it just sounds like, like you've had people who gave you those nuggets along the way. I did, I was fortunate. Be there. I was very fortunate. I just heard uh, Joe Girardi on a broadcast just a couple of minutes ago, our Phillies manager, and he said, um, he was talking about butterflies. And he said, yeah, we all have butterflies. It doesn't make any difference how long you've been in the game. Or, right. Obviously, with an actor, how many times they've gone on stage. But you're going to have those butterflies, and that's good. Johnny Carson said he had those butterflies before the curtain opened every night. Yes. He used it to his advantage. And if you don't have those butterflies, you might be flat. Right. And said the good thing is as soon as the first pitch is thrown now you're in game mode yes preparation you've gone past the butterflies now you're where you feel more comfortable and i'm sure all the athletes have told you as i've heard from them over the many years i've been around that once the game starts if it's a running back once he gets hit <laughs> no butterflies anymore now i'm playing the sport where i feel the most comfortable and i guess that's the key to all of us for performances being at our place where we're most comfortable. Yeah, you know, and I, I can think about even from my profession, right, profession, like being able to see, you know, a new client every time, right before that client, I can feel that little bit of anxiety. But once mm -hmm. we start talking, once we're like in our flow, it's 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 gone. And, or if I have to do an interview on TV, I could feel it a little bit. But then, you know, once we get going, it, it's, you know, as I say, it's game time, it's show time. Right. And I could hear like, like you've had those curtain calls. You've had those kind of, you know, three countdowns, three, two on sure. you, right? Ready for that to sure. go. 
And I'm wondering for you, Scott, what would you say, if you can think of like all the amazing things, uh, interesting things that you've done, what would be something that is a high moment for you that sticks out for you out of your career? That's, that's easy. Uh, because of the profession I've had for the last 16 years with the Phillies, when we won our World Series championship in 1980, I was able to take part as every member of our front office, not just the players, in a parade that Philadelphians have been waiting more than 20 years for. And to feel that love from the city on a float uh, for over three hours, your smile muscles get tired. But the best was when they selected me to open the ceremonies at Citizens Bank Park after that parade. Now here's 40,000 people in a major league stadium. I I thought before I went on, this, this can't be, someone's going to wake me up because there's no way that I was part of a World Series championship team. When I was growing up in Chicago, the Cubs always finished in eighth place when there was only eight teams in the National <laughs> and, and so I never thought I'd be a part of a, a World Series team for crying out loud. And now all the fans are there and they're asking me to come up with something poignant, I guess, to say. Uh, and when they say go... It's good to be prepared, but it's always also good to be flexible. Yeah. Read your audience, feel it, feel, feel their energy. That was my high point. I felt their energy and their passion and, and their love for the city's baseball team. And they couldn't wait to hear from them. They didn't want to hear from me. So my last thought was keep it short, keep it to the point. Thank them. As David Montgomery are, 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 such a sweet man, gone too soon in heaven, leader of the Phillies for so many years, would always say, our first name is Philadelphia. <laughs> Forget that. And those were the words that I thought before I went up and thanked the city of Philadelphia and said, I'm sorry, we're a little late. We had to say hello to a few of our friends on the way. <laughs> it just came out. I didn't prepare that. Right. Uh, and then quickly, you know, got into the rest of the program. So that was definitely... That was definitely the high point. If I can just tell a real quick story. Of course. My first time in public with David, who was nice enough to hire me, in the playoffs for the first time in 2007, the year before I won the championship, and they had a big rally in the city. And I was going to be the MC. Fine, good. I was had experience from Channel 6 and a lifetime experience hosting. And a lady came off with a New York, city newspaper and it had a little baby with a new york mets jersey and he was crying and and, and i and we had just overtaken the mets so i was going to show that newspaper and i was going to say yeah we have it you know we beat new york david looked at me and said you're not going to show that are you and i always promised i would be honest with him told him, I, told him i'd never tell him a lie and i said yes and he berated me to within an inch of my life, 30 seconds before I was representing his team. That's not who we are. I just got a call from the chairman of the Mets 10 minutes before I came down here and he congratulated me. And now you're going to make fun of this. Uh, yeah. Maybe you're not who we thought you were. Yeah. Talk about a sobering moment before you go on stage. Yeah. It's a sobering moment, hearing that from a man you respect and love. So fortunately along the way, I guess I've learned a few things about what's really important and that's the fans. 
No, right. I mean, I love that in terms of like, you know, I remember the 2008 championship and like to hear that you were there and like to feel the energy of 40,000 fans, Nothing like it. the joy of the championship. And then even what you mentioned about, you know, David Montgomery about like, you know, integrity, right? Like that's yes. who we are, right? In terms of, you know, like we, even though we compete against each other, that's still my friend. That's still someone who calls to support and encourage me. Yes. And so like we're not going to like belittle them in that way. And so I'm curious for you, like in those those amazing moments, who did you speak to after or who did you talk to or share that information? Like after the 40,000 or even after David Montgomery shared that with you, like who, who do you who did you talk to first? That's always easy because the one person who was with me in my uh, youngest days, I started dating my wife when I was um, a senior in high school. I, I, not only was I not good at math, I also wasn't very good at, at talking to ladies. <laughs> and uh, my best friend had a second cousin who lived about 20 miles away. And he said, you're not having much success with the girls in our high school. We may have to take a road trip. And we did. And I met Kathy and, uh, this February we'll be married for 50 years. Oh, that's awesome. That's 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 all her. That's not me. Uh, but I, I always uh, go to her because, again, she knew me in high school when things were toughest for me. And she's been she's been my my lantern. I, I know my true north. Uh, I know she's not going to BS me. And if I'm bad, she's going to tell me I'm bad. And if, if, if I happen to be good, she's going to enjoy the moment with me. No, I love that. I love that she's my lantern. I mean, that that sticks out to me, right? Like that she, this is my interpretation. She shines light yes. <laughs> on my path. Right? <laughs> and she can turn it off real fast too if I do something bad. <laughs> I'm in the dark real fast. But it's always for my best. Uh, that That's awesome. And like, I, and you know, as, as we talked about you experiencing dys dyslexia growing up and the tough times in high school, and someone who knew you then and knew what you experienced, knew what you said to yourself, the good and the bad, but also saw how you managed the journey. I could imagine, right, that after 40,000 people and the energy that, yes, you want to share that with the person who's your lantern. And, and that makes that makes so much sense. And, sure. and, and I guess, like, you know, like in those moments, right, like what's that like to have somebody like like your wife that you can go to? I think I think it's all important, Dr. George. Um, you need somebody who's not going to BS you. You need somebody who's who's with you uh, and 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 tries to help you. And I I still need a lot of help along the way. And she's good at, at encouraging me. And and if you don't have that person who you really know, uh, I mean, I can't. And this happens a lot. There's a lot of a lot of athletes and and performers who wind up with second and third wives. And I often feel sorry for them. Mm -hmm. It's not, maybe it's, it's, it's always circumstances, obviously. And, and uh, so they're moving on or maybe the, the spouse moved on, but if you're lucky enough, and I've always thought that when you marry somebody, hopefully you're here mm -hmm. and life happens and life takes you yeah. all different twists and turns. Yeah. And if you zig when she zigs and you zag when she zags, you stay together, but someone who zigs and someone who zags, and it's not always anybody's fault. Sometimes it's just life. But if you're lucky enough to have that path with with your better half, you're you're, you're very fortunate. Uh, and and if it's if it's not your wife, if it's your 
or your husband, if it's your close counsel, somebody who's been with you all the time, you know, that's just as good, but it's gotta be somebody who understands you and who isn't going to sugarcoat something. Yeah. Uh, someone's going to shoot you straight. You know, I, I share often uh, with some of the folks that I work with, it's important to have old friends, right? Oof, People yeah. who know you, uh, know you from back when, and yeah, right. uh, you know you can see like so many people, especially as we move up in our career or have success, especially like you know when we look at athletes and entertainers, leaders, performers, or people who are, you know, are at the the height, the peak of their career. Sometimes the people around them may or may not be the best, <laughs> but when you mm -hmm. have folks that have known you, and in your case, your old friend actually is also your wife, who's like you get you've been able to have those moments and those memories with that. I think that's just really great. I'm wondering, like, as you share, like, the height of, like, the 40,000, can you think of moments that was also very tough in your career, like maybe a rejection or a setback or a difficulty uh, that you, you're willing to share? Oh, of course. And, and I'll give you one professionally very quickly. I said I came from Birmingham to, to Philadelphia. I, I didn't tell you that I needed to find someplace to go because uh, as oftentimes happens in broadcasting, uh, almost it happens to everybody almost at least once. Fortunately for me, it only happened once. I was fired. Uh, I had just been named Alabama Sportscaster of the Year the second year, my second year in, in the city, uh, vo voted on by my peers. And uh, it's also the, I think I saw that you talked about like, you know, with the Alabama football team and Charles Barkley. Was this all yeah. like after all of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, nobody knew who Charles Barkley was except right. the kid that leads high school and, and every opponent that he embarrassed. On right. uh, and I can talk about that later. But but what happened was uh, I was on my way to Alabama's bowl game, the Cotton Bowl game. Oh. First year, Alabama won the national championship. That was, a, that was a fun time. And the second year, we still went to the Cotton Bowl. We lost one game to Notre Dame. I say we. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. And then I was a broadcaster. I tried to separate. Right, right, right. It's all good. <laughs> and while I was there, uh, my second year, and I was—I happened to be sick. I had the flu, and and we drove from Birmingham to Dallas. And when I got to the hotel, one of the uh, sports writers said, "Scott, I'm I'm really sorry to hear what happened to you." And this is pre-cell phone days, so imagine the fright you have after you've been on the road for a, you know a good day, day and a half. And I thought immediately something's happened to my family, and I said, "Why?" I honestly, I, you got me here. And he said, you better call your boss. Well, between the time that I left for that game and the time that I got to Dallas, the station I worked for was sold. Oh. And the guy who bought it wanted to hire the news director and the sports director from the competing station because they had bigger names and have been in town longer. So the general manager said, we need to talk when you get back. And he said, you, you, uh, you're a casualty of the business. Um, you still have four months and we, we need to pay you. Um, but if you help endorse the person who's succeeding you and do a, you know, a spot, a promotion spot with him and say good things about him, we'll help you find a job. Uh, and I thought my dad, my dad gave me plenty of good advice. And he always said, don't burn your bridges, which he all the time. But I took it to heart. And I said, yeah, I could do a, you know, an FU moment right here. Right. <laughs> How dare you? That's going to give me a couple of hours of set. I told him, and now where do I go? But I said, of course I'll do that. And it was crazy because after I left, the guy that replaced me got uh, indicted in a cocaine ring. Oh, wow. 
I'm here, you know, saying what a good guy he is. And they had a consultant service uh, named Frank Maggot, which people in broadcasting are well aware of. And uh, Channel 6 was one of its clients, and they cycled tapes to a number of stations, and Philadelphia needed a sportscaster at that time. So I was fortunate if I would have said, no, I'm not, you know, pay me, you know, I'm throwing a hissy fit. Who knows where it would have ended up? Maybe someplace good, but not as good as Channel 6 in Philadelphia. Wow. And then you were there for a number of years. That was the main stop of your career. Before. Almost 25 years. Wow. Yes. Almost 25 years. And and to be able to work with the same anchor team and, and Mark Howard and Lisa Thomas-Laurie and, uh, you know, uh, Dave Roberts, uh, the the same team stayed together. That, that just doesn't happen in Brooklyn. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so I was very fortunate and, and very fortunate to be able to, uh, you know, represent uh, the city sports teams and, and, and go to an Olympics. And I just was reminded it was 30 years ago today that the uh, first night game was played at Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. I used to go as a seven-year-old all the way through high school. And I was at that game. Not only was I at that game because they played the Phillies, my partner in that game was Tug McGraw. Oh, wow. I first started covering as an athlete. Now he's my Channel 6 colleague, and we're watching the first night game, which not to be the first night game because it got rained out, if people remember. And uh, 8888 became 8988 when the Mets came to town the next next day for the first night game. But yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just, it's, it's awesome. It works out. And incredible. And, you know, like, like you said, like, you were fired. <laughs> you were yeah. a casualty. Um, yes, yeah, right. You could, have, you could have like just told them, you know, where to 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 go and what to do with it. But like you took that opportunity and uh, to to like you said, not burn bridges, right? You remember, you know, the voice of, of your father in that moment, <laughs> and and how like that did set you on a trajectory that really ignited your career. And and if you had stayed, who knows what would have happened? Or if you had blown them off or, you know, like it could have gone really worse for you. But that the fact that you once again, I think one of the themes I'm hearing today, right? Like you had integrity, you had character, right? Oh, yeah. those, those things, right, that you exhibited in tough moments, right? Like even after David Montgomery berated you, you could have said, <laughs> I don't have to take this and I could leave. But like, and of course, excuse me, I gotta interrupt you because I saw David in the lunch line after that was over here at the ballpark. Of course, he's going to be right behind me because whenever you made a mistake, David would always know it. He would always know it. And so he's behind me. And I thought, I got to say something. I said, uh, David, uh, it's not always a good idea to tear down mentally the man who's going to represent your organization. <laughs> inch of his life i mean i felt like i was playing rope-a-dope and david just kept punches. and i said it's not a good idea to do that to someone who's gonna represent your club 30 seconds later right i thought he'd say yeah my bad but he said okay but you know i was right <laughs> i said david right. i know you're always right, right. Um, i is, know you're always right but but to, to kind of bounce off what you were starting to say i have a chance to go into uh, schools a lot of times and, and speak to kids and the the message I think which is always the most important to younger people and I don't know if I've if I've, if I've always learned it myself but I've tried to you know right from wrong we all know right from wrong yeah. Yeah. and there's something that is a signal and it's right here it's right here always yeah. and if it's wrong this tells you it's wrong now you can go ahead and fight that 
But you know in your heart, don't come to me and say, I didn't know, because this always tells you mm -hmm. if it's wrong, for the same reason that this always tells you what to do, where to follow. Where's your passion? That's here. Passion's here. Follow that. Yeah. And if you go for someplace because you want to make an extra couple of dollars and drive a nicer car, that clock is going to go tick. <laughs> Right. And that drive to work, Dr. George, is going to get shorter and shorter because you don't want to be there. But go something, go someplace and do something that your heart's in, where your passion is. And OK, you're going to drive not as nice a car. You maybe not wear as nice a clothes. But when your head hits the pillow, you're going to sleep good. Right. You're going to be at peace, right? There, there is something about, especially like, you know, we talk about like the mind and body and the connection. There's something about being at peace. There's something about feeling good about yourself and the mm -hmm. decisions. Like we could, we could berate ourselves. We could have negative self-talk. But when and we, we all do. Right, we all do. Right. And, but when we know that we've made some good choices and like you said, like, I think like what I hear, like, even with the difficulties, stand up and, and have integrity or have character, even in the most difficult moments, that, that allows you to rest rest well at night. I'm curious, I'm curious, you know, like you and I have had, you know, one of the way that I'm able to even have this conversation is because of my uh, opportunities to work with you in the Phillies and mm -hmm. striking out the stigma and, you know, uh, amazing program. And, you know, in one of the, the times that we were together, you mentioned about just your own experiences with anxiety. And, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, when did you start to even recognize that you were experiencing anxiety and how did you handle that? Really good question. And I can't remember, honestly, having anxiety as I was younger. I don't know why. And it really didn't happen early in my career. And oddly enough, most people would think it happens when I'm in front of a television camera or in, in front of a group of people. That's not when it happens. I began to recognize it a few years ago to where there was this feeling in my body that I couldn't describe, that I'd never felt before. A great feeling of unease just all over and wanting to just sit and hold something tight. Yeah. Not know what it was, which was the scariest part. And Time, a couple hours, took it away, and then I experienced it again. And I realized at this point I should, I should probably go to somebody who might be able to give me some answers. So my medical physician uh, gave me the name uh, of, of a, uh, a person who could possibly help, a psychologist. And I found out at the root of my problem was my life had been so good up to then. I have been so fortunate in my life, I mean, to be fired from a station in Alabama and two weeks later get a job in Philadelphia, the fourth major market, to find the love of my life in high school, to be still be married to her and, and, and she's, you know, my soul, to have two wonderful children that both have great jobs and, and, and love us and we love them. I ask him directly, when is that bus coming around the corner again? Because it has to. Yeah. Nobody can be this lucky. And I think after talking with him at length, that was my problem. Became very conscious of at some point, this is all going to end badly. Mm -hmm. And his advice to me, his counseling to me, was it might, 
but you know, not because of what you've done in the past or the decisions you've made in the past, just the same as it can hit somebody who's made all bad decisions in their life. That's just fate. And once I began to understand that, at least I, at least I knew where that was coming from. That didn't end it because I still have anxiety at certain times. And, and, and there is medication for it, which I don't have to use often, but when I do have anxiety, it's there. And I think that comforts me knowing that if this happens, you know, there's something for it that will, will help relieve it. Uh, but knowing why I think helped me understand it uh, and, and be free to talk about it, which I have never been free to talk about until this year, which I became involved in a program here at the Phillies uh, called Strike Out the Stigma. Uh, which hopefully uh, is going to be a way of us talking openly about having a checkup from the head up as well I've heard. And, 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 you know, as I've mentioned many times, and I, I told you, Dr. George, when an athlete has an injury, you know it because he can't pitch, right? I mean, he's, he's injured. Part of his body is injured. Athletes recognize that they understand that and they accept it. What most of them, many of them, the unenlightened ones don't understand is someone may have this mm-hmm. it's not right and not be able to perform. Well, he's not a good teammate. Well, I don't see anything wrong with him. Why isn't he going out there and giving his best? How did he, how did he just, you know, poop the bed right there tonight when we need it the most, right? You know, we have to understand. And now we have an understanding in professional sports with many teams, including ours, with people who are trained to be able to have conversations with players who need to have those conversations. And if they can't help, we can lead them to someone else who can help. But I mean, professional athletes are lucky. Let's be honest, they make, you know, mostly millions of dollars. They're very fortunate, but that doesn't make them not people. Make them unhuman. They have the same wants, desires, fears that we all have. And, you know, I think it's good to recognize that and hopefully now I think we're starting to strike out the stigma, if you will, and you've helped us in those programs of not being ashamed of, of talking about limitations that are chemical, you know, in your body. We're all wired differently, correct? I mean, that's what I've heard. And mine is just my body's just wired this way. We have some things we're gifted with that help us greatly. In addition to that, we have some things we need to overcome or deal with. I really appreciate, you know, one you sharing and, how you made, you know, all those connections. And, you know, I, I think about, you know, as you mentioned about professional athletes and people that we see and we look to and we're like, yeah, they have everything in life, right? <laughs> but, uh, or, but people might not understand what they might be experiencing, even to like what you said about growing up in high school, like where, you know, your parents were like, you're not trying hard enough. Your yeah. family's you're not trying hard enough, but there was something else that is going on. And mm-hmm. something like with a teammate where like, you know, why did you strike out or why are you not like showing up when we need you when there's so much else going on? And I really appreciated how, you know, you talked about, you know, your experience with anxiety, because for lots of times we think that, oh, anxiety only happens when people have had a lot of bad experiences, right? And negatives in their yeah. life, right? right? But what you're helping us to even think about and understand is that anxiety can happen when you've had a great life, when you've had a blessed life, when you've had a, a lucky life, as you mentioned, and that sometimes it is the thought of it feels almost too good to be true and 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 uh, that but but you were able to to work through that 
and ground yourself and you have skills and tools and resources to help you in those moments. So I, I'm not I'm, everyone does. I, and another thing, I've been very fortunate to be able to take advantage of, of where I am now and the insurance and everything else that, that we have. Not everybody has those uh, advantages and those are the people that we most need to reach out to. That is so true, and, and you know that's one of the the reasons why I'm even doing Leapcast because there's so many people, especially our leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers, where we don't often see them as human or think about their human moments. We just think about all their accolades, but sometimes they're experiencing other things that we need to talk about. So here at Leapcast, we have as we wrap up, there's kind of three last questions I like to ask, really with uh, a fourth one. So the first one is actually. Is there anything that you're currently working on or uh, supporting or or involved with right now that you'd like to share with everyone? Well, one of the new things that I'm working with, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Dr. George, is Project Home, uh, which the Phillies uh, have kind of adopted as one of our, our uh, charities. Uh, homelessness is a huge problem. And I was not really aware of it much past Every Thanksgiving, the club provides meals that we cook. In, in our case, sometimes our spouses cook. I can't cook. Uh, and when we serve to a place called uh, our brother's place, it's a homeless shelter. And, and I recognize that once a year. But like many people, if you're not around it, the only time you see it is somebody who's asking for money on the street. Mm -hmm. And we did a, a, a bingo night at one of the Project Home um, locations. And talking to some people about it, I realized, um, they told me anyway, that uh, homelessness is not incurable, that we can take people off the streets. And they also said sometimes it takes someone going to that person 18 times mm -hmm. before they agree to come to a shelter and start the process. But it's not something that we can't conquer. And they say, you know, no one is home until we're all home. And I'll be doing a, a dinner tonight, uh, this week, uh, depending on when this airs, uh, <laughs> for a, a Project Home um, Foundation. And that, that's what is, is currently uh, piquing my interest because now as an ambassador, my, my only two real jobs are uh, fan engagement and charities. And those are the two things that I enjoy doing the most. So <laughs> that's what I'm involved in now. That's really great. And, you know, like you said, homelessness is uh, a significant uh, concern and problem in the United States and around the world. And, you know, uh, I've heard statistics, really, I think my wife shared this with me about that there's enough wealth in the world that even if they gave a little bit of what they have, we could eradicate homelessness throughout the world and they still could have all their money. All right. So like there's this thought of like what that means and, and I think also to what we've been talking about today is that homelessness is yes about someone not having their their own place to live but but it's also usually connected to a lot of other challenges sometimes um, mental health challenges sometimes just trauma or difficulties that they've had in their life that also need to be addressed and sometimes people just don't look at someone who's homeless or see them as human. So uh, it sounds like a really great cause and, and uh, important thing that you're doing. So one of my last few questions, um, what does mental wellness mean to you? It means everything. It, it means being able to, as I said before, uh, when, you're, when your head hits a pillow, being able to have a good night's sleep, 
Now, those of us of a certain age are not going to sleep all through the night anymore because of certain biological conditions. Yeah, I know. We don't need to go there. But uh, I need to go there. Right, right. <laughs> but the, uh, the honest truth is, uh, if, if, if you feel at the end of the day that the people you've come into contact with, you've treated them well, and uh, you've led your your life or that day at least because all we all have is one day at a time um you know with with dignity and with character uh, that's that's mental wellness and uh, to me anyway and uh, knowing that when you need help if you're unwell that you know that you're very fortunate enough to know where there's a place you can find it that's great second question what mental wellness advice would you give to your younger self? And that could be anywhere from yesterday oh to all the way back. Whatever you think, what mental wellness advice would you give? Well, and this, I guess, is a, a motto for uh, trying to uh, let kids know who are having a really bad time for whatever reason, because of their identity or because of their status in life or because of a, a learning disability what I've heard is this motto, it gets better. I think I would tell myself uh, and when I was struggling and, under, and not understanding why I wasn't as smart as I should be or that I couldn't get a date <laughs> or that I, I, my dad wanted to be, me to be a businessman because he was a businessman. That was the only thing I could do and I didn't want to be a businessman. Wait, it gets better, I guess. Tell myself. And, and for me, it gets great. But I would have never, I would have never been that optimistic about myself, even at a younger age, to tell, tell myself that. No, I think that's fabulous because you know, once again, like when we're going through or having challenges, it's really hard for us to think or believe or see that it can get better or even great. And well, when we're young, right, Doc? I want to ask you this: When we're young, we don't see a whole lifetime ahead of us. We don't. Now, now, it's. The time is precious as we get older, but it also, when you're younger, time is precious. And it seems like a week, well, I got to wait a long time for a week. Now a week for us at our age, <laughs> right, right. Wednesday and Sunday. So it's, it, it's hard when you're younger, isn't it? To think about when you're a freshman, when you're a, a sophomore or when you're a junior, or when you're a senior or when you're married, right? It, it's definitely hard. And especially you know when there's so many other people who we feel that they're doing it and we're not right yes. that whole thought and so i really love you know that you were able to say that uh the last question that i'll ask uh as we end our, our time here on leapcast is when you think about your profession whether that as a broadcaster or um or as an ambassador for the phillies uh how has taking care of your mental healthness uh, mental wellness uh, been beneficial like how does it connect for that for your career being able to I think no matter what your career is I'm sorry I think no matter what your career is uh, Dr. George uh, it will connect just because of the way you treat people and you can't treat people right if you're not treating yourself right yeah. I mean it's it starts it starts with us and maybe that's egotistical I don't think it is but if, if it is it, it's it's the okay egotistical part um it's hard for me to answer that question. I, I think just being optimistic. I mean, around here, they call me the mayor sometimes. I'm flattered by that sometimes until I wonder, 
about the state of politics <laughs> if that's a dig but i think it means that i get along with people yeah. and when i see them in the hall i smile and say hi and uh just try to be a positive energy source so i guess that's i guess that's mental wellness that's awesome. Uh, thank you. This has been uh, Scott Palmer, who ambassador to the Philadelphia Phillies and longtime award-winning uh, broadcaster. Uh, he, is, uh, he joined us today at Leapcast, where we examine, un, uh, un, uh, we explore unexamined human moments of high achievers. And I'm Dr. George James. I am excited uh, for this time that we were able to share. Thank you, Scott, so much for joining, for sharing and for just allowing us to, to hear just a little bit more of your story. Dr. George, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I think, uh, you know, I want to make sure that I, that I watch uh, your podcast with others because I, I think this is a great forum for people and um, to talk about and, and also to listen to or watch. Wow, what an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the Leapcast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating, and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.